Welcome to Keep You 100 Radio. I'm your host, Felicity Pointer, type 1 diabetic, certified health coach, personal trainer, and founder of Needles and Spoons Health and Wellness. Inside this podcast, you'll find the real and raw conversations around diabetes management, including the lessons that we don't learn in our endos office, my best tips and trainings, and conversations from the experts that I trust inside the community so that you can create more predictability in your diabetes management and feel empowered while doing so. Let's dive in. Before we dive into this episode, I need to tell you about the newest Skin Grip launch. I don't usually brag about products that much, but when there are genuine companies out there making life with diabetes easier, I really do think that everybody should know about them. Skin Grip just launched their newest Skin Grip Mats Collection for the Deathcom G Sits and Freestyle Libre. Not only is this a smaller in size, high performance, and non-frightening option, but let me tell you, it works. I was lucky enough to be able to try them out, and first of all, this thing did not even lift. And the more impressive thing is that I was wearing my Deathcom on my leg at this time. And we all know that that is not always possible. What I really loved about it was that it's really discreet, which I really appreciated. As much as I'm comfortable showing off my diabetes, sometimes I just want my devices to lay low. This new collection is all about Matt's performance, Matt's protection, and Matt's comfort. You can try them out for yourself at skingrip.com using the code LISSIE, L-I-S-S-I-E, to save. Now let's dive into the episode. Welcome back to Keep 100 Radio. Today's guest, I actually heard speak back in 2019 at the Connected Emotion Slipstream in Maine. I heard you talk for the first time in your uh, session, I think it was Data Beaties, uh, I believe. And I like wasn't sure what to expect walking in. I'm like, you know, maybe we'll be talking about, you know, blood sugar numbers and how to interpret the trends, but it was a very open and real conversation. This was only a few years into my own diagnosis and was the first time that I had actually heard you speak. Carrie Sparling is a writer, poet, and speaker who has dedicated her life to the power of patient narrative. Since 2005, she has been a leading voice in the patient advocacy space, sharing her personal journey of over 36 years with type 1 diabetes and helping sharing stories from others in the patient community. Carrie has worked to bolster the influence of patient stories in the healthcare space from academic journals to keynote presentations around the world. She is best known for her patient storyteller at sitsuntilme.com and as an author of Sits Until Me, Bouncing Diabetes, and Rage Bulls. <laughs> it's so awkward you read a bio when the person's sitting right in front of you. I know that's the worst. <laughs> I just wanted to give everyone a little bit of background into you but and, and to really welcome you formally into the show. But thank you so much for offering to come on and hang out with us for the day. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm hoping all kids will be quiet, cats will be... <laughs> non-committal to this call. So like, it should just be us, I hope. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but yeah, do you want to take a second to kind of introduce yourself and share a little bit more about you that maybe we didn't cover yet? Like a less formal bio? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Read, like the big kid bio? And then, yeah. I guess um, I, just starting from when I started blogging. So I started blogging in 2005 because I didn't know anybody else who had diabetes. And so my like entry point into the diabetes online community was looking for people. And now I feel like it's much easier to find people. There are lots of different on social media ways that you can find people, lots of different websites, podcasts, et cetera, that you can find connections. But when I first started out, I didn't know anybody else out there on the internet, which is such a weird thing to say now when you compare it. Um, but it's been like the honor of a lifetime, if it's possible to say that when I'm not old or dead yet, <laughs> to be part of this. This has been so good for my pancreas, as you know, <laughs> odd as it may be at times. <laughs> No, and it's, I mean, I've said this in other episodes, but like, I feel like we were diagnosed in very different, not only points in our life, but like generationally to be yeah. to just like the internet stages and everything. I was diagnosed when I was 19. So, I mean, that was only about eight years ago. And when I was 
looking online for just people to connect with because I didn't know anybody else in college, I went straight to YouTube. And the only person that I was getting on YouTube that had type 1 diabetes was Nick Jonas. And I don't know about everyone else, but like I can't really relate to Nick Jonas <laughs> other than like we have type 1 diabetes. So I love that you created this safe space to be able to share those you know, share your journeys and just make it comfortable for other people to do the same. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your diagnosis journey and living with type one? Sure. Oh yeah. Well, streamline it. Right. So (laughs) I was diagnosed when I was seven. So unlike you, I was a little kid. And when people talk about when they're diagnosed as adults, I always want to pick your brain because I find it so fascinating that you remember conceptually what life was like before you had diabetes. I have such fledgling, like weird memories of that, that they almost don't exist. I feel like my whole life has included type one, which is kind of like a brain because it's just odd to think that this thing that is newer to you has been something that I've never known life without. And so I was diagnosed before I started second grade. I didn't have a big diagnosis like drama story. I guess I went to the pediatrician. There was sugar in my urine. I remember going to soccer practice, my mom picking me up and being like, something's wrong with your pee, which to me sounded bizarre. And I think the next day I was diagnosed with type one and everything kind of unfolded and unraveled quickly from there. At the time, they were hospitalizing kids for 12 to 14 days to get them acclimated to life with type 1. We didn't have insulin pumps readily available. Home glucose meters, they existed. I mean, I'm, I'm 43 years old. I've had type 1 for 36 years. So like we we are from completely different spaces um, age-wise, but also with tech and, and access to tech-wise, it's completely different mm-hmm. now than it was in 1986 when I was diagnosed. And um, I thought glucose meters for homes didn't exist. I thought my mom was like lying when she said that she brought home the urinalysis kit. They did exist at the time. What I didn't realize until much, much later was that my mom opted to receive a urinalysis kit instead of of a glucose, like a finger prick machine, because she was so intimidated by my diagnosis and so unsure of what to do with this new normal, with all this data, that she needed something slightly more remedial as we eased into it. And from what she tells me, we had the pee tester at home for like four weeks before she moved on to a glucose meter. And wow. when she told me this, I'd already had kids of my own and I was a bona fide grown up. I hadn't considered what I was considered what it was like for us living with diabetes, but I, I didn't often put myself into the shoes of my parents who had to look at their little kid living with a chronic illness and go, I have to make sense of this because she's just too small to do it on her own. That right. blew my mind. It's yeah. like, wow, you had to really ease into this on your own emotional level. And so I'm sure when you talk to other parents um, of people, you know, like us, our parents, they do some of a completely different journey that we're doing for the same disease. And that is just so interesting to me that the older I get, the more I'm like, so what was it like being on the other side of that equation? So when you're asking about my diagnosis, most of it doesn't really matter to me, but it mattered very deeply to my parents because they did the heavy lifting back in the day. Right. That's so interesting. It's more of like, I mean, not not to take away from your experience, but it's like they were equally as diagnosed as you were. Whereas, yeah. you know, for <laughs> for my parents, other end of the spectrum, I was in college, I was 19. They're like, okay, like you're diagnosed with this thing. Like you have the tool, like the doctors are talking to, directly to you. You you are given the tools, like we'll support you. We're, we're four hours away, but we'll support you as much as we can. But very, and technology advances so different. But right. I actually had a question from your diagnosis story and the stories I was reading, the, the P alarm. I have oh. questions about that. <laughs> it's so gross. It's such a gross thing to think about. So the P alarm was this thing. So before I was diagnosed, I didn't really have any symptoms. I didn't have the weight loss. I didn't have any um, really big incidents at home that lent themselves towards a diabetes diagnosis. But I did start wetting the bed again. And it was one of those things where my parents were like, you didn't wet the bed before. Now you suddenly are. They didn't know the symptoms of diabetes. So they just said, something's wrong. It must be something we have to phase out of. 
And so they bought this pee alarm. It is so gross and it still exists today um, for multitude of uses. But for me, it were these two little, uh, these two little like metal nodes that you connect inside your underpants. This is embarrassing. Sorry. <laughs> and so if liquid would come between those nodes, they would connect and there'd be a connection point and an alarm would go off. And it was this device I would wear attached to my pants. So as soon as I would start to wet my pants, the node would go off, the alarm would go off. I'd you know, be vaulted out of bed with this giant noise. I'd have to run down the hallway to my parents' room. My brother and sister came in from their rooms. My parents were like fumbling to try to disconnect the thing. And I think I stopped wetting the bed because I was friggin' terrified <laughs> of the noise. I still had diabetes, but the symptom was brought down to a minimum because instead of peeing the bed, I would just wake up at night and go to the bathroom. Right. Um, but my mom like threatened me with that when I was younger. She said, that thing, I still have it. I'm going to give it to you when you get married. And we used to laugh about that. I'm like, that's such a gross thing. Why Why would you say that? Then <laughs> she did. And it still worked. Like she gave it to me in my wedding shower when the little thing, when we connected, it still made the same alarm and everybody freaked out. And it was just, it was a weird thing. <laughs> it's a super weird thing to have. Essential if you're dealing with that issue. But I mean, wow. <laughs> I guess it's effective in one way, but maybe she's probably relieved to hear, I mean, not diabetes is never something that you're a relief but joke by the way so that's good (laughs) (laughs) i was just kind of like i I was reading that i'm like i've never heard of this thing but it's it's so relatable i mean hopefully not everybody has had to has had to use that but i remember like same thing waking up in my dorms being like okay i have to pee like three times a night this is not normal but i was also recovering from the flu so i think i just tossed it up to that um but we can explain away so many different things but Oh, yeah. At the end of the day, it's happening and you have to lean into it. Right, right. But I did want to kind of ask, like, so like you mentioned, you were diagnosed in 1986. And Mm -hmm. like, I mean, obviously, diagnosis now, either way is hard. I think no matter what. But can you kind of speak on the just growing up with it and kind of the different technological advances that you see? Like looking back now, Mm -hmm. just can you speak on that a little bit of, of what that's like to look back at the different Uses. I always I always want to put on my old man like the grizzled voice. Well, back in my day, you know, but it's kind of a back in my day sort of thing. So, like I mentioned before, I didn't have an at home glucose meter for four weeks. Again, they existed, but my mother wasn't comfortable having that in our house quite then. Um, so I was peeing in test tubes and then dropping these little like color tablets, almost like the things you'd use to to color Easter eggs in the way that they looked, and yeah. they would change the color of my urine. And that based on the color that the urine changed was how much was indicative of how much sugar I was spilling. That's so archaic. And it was like four to six hours. The data that I was getting was older than what was accurate in my bloodstream. So we were making insulin choices and dosing choices based on really bad data. Um, I use syringes instead of insulin pumps. Again, they existed, but they were not accessible for, to children in my situation or families in my situation. Um, so I was taking injections of long acting and short acting insulin. Short acting was regular. I used regular and NPH. I like, mm-hmm childhood memory, you know, those memories that are just really secured in your brain for whatever reason, the sound of my mom rolling insulin bottles in the morning to mix my insulin doses and hearing the bottles clack against her rings as they rolled became one of like a soundtrack of my, of my chronic illness youth, I guess. Um, and then, you know, kind of fast forward a little bit, the insulins got a little faster. Humalog came onto the market. So we had actual rapid acting insulin instead of regular. Um, and then I got my first insulin pump in 2004. I was 17 at the time when I got my insulin pump. Again, you were diagnosed two years after I got, it's just like Mm -hmm. a weird kind of back and forth. But um, I was 24 when I went on an insulin pump. I was 26 when I went on my first CGM. And it was just so interesting to me when I look at children who are diagnosed now, when they hopefully have access to this technology, that we kind of drove our diabetes stick shift style back in the back in the day. And now I feel like it's slightly more automatic, which is good. Doesn't make it easier because there's a Mm -hmm. whole 
host of things that come with needing to wear a device, access a device, pay for a device, mentally manage a device. Yeah. Those things put aside for just a second. Um, that stuff didn't even exist when I was when I was coming up. And it is it's humbling to think that that's how my parents did it. And it's also really encouraging to think that if that's what's happened in 30 years, what are we going to see in the next 30? Like how much more automated and back burner can this become before we don't really think about it much at all? And I kind of like the idea of a cure, but this seems like a more accessible uh, quality of life improvement for me. Yeah, absolutely. Especially like when you think of all the mental space that diabetes takes up. So much. <laughs> right. And, and you're like, you're saying like you were in data four to six hours after the actual, like after the technical reading and making mm-hmm. decisions based off of that. And now I feel like we're so advanced that we're, we're like, oh, I didn't get a Dutscom reading in two hours because of the warm up, or I didn't, you know, my reading yes. is five minutes behind. <laughs> and we're like, it's like, okay, I can actually deal with that. That's okay. <laughs> I know. But then I feel spoiled now. Like in yeah. that two hour warm up period, I get all fired up. I'm like, oh, I don't know what my numbers are. As though there's not a glucose meter in my bathroom somewhere that I could bust out. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. It's, right. It feels really like kind of nice to be able to say that we've come this far yeah. to be able to say that we don't need to check our blood sugar all the time by lancing our fingertip. Yeah. 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 I mean, hey, even like the, the G7 is going to be a 30 minute warm up. That will be like, that would be awesome. That's going to be amazing. I'm excited. But tell me a little bit more about how Sits Until Me got started. How, um, I know you mentioned like wanting to share a bit more about your journey and, and blogging, but where did that name come from? Where did that idea stem from? How did, how did it all start? This is where I get in trouble because the name of the blog, it's, I think I'm some kind of weird poet and that it doesn't translate good to like Google SEO terms. So I was trying to make a blog name that sounded so ethereal and so cool. I should have just put diabetes in the title and like cut it a day or called it a day. But my, my husband, my boyfriend at the time, he's now my husband was like, people are writing blogs, um, about stuff online, blogs about stuff. This is when blogs weren't like a real thing that a lot of people knew about. And so he suggested that I write a blog to share my experiences with diabetes because as I would kind of complain to him here and there, and I know anybody else who had it. When I went to diabetes camp, I had access to a lot of other kids who had diabetes, but in my early twenties, I didn't know anybody. And that felt kind of isolating despite the support that I had from my friends and family, all these other people who had the audacity to make their own insulin, right? (laughs) Right. So, um, so he's like, you know, you should start a blog. And I called it six until me because I started wetting the bed when I was six, six years until me, the me in that blog title is diabetes. That does not translate again well to, you know, SEO search terms, but that's why it's called that. But I was actually diagnosed when I was seven. That's why I'm constantly explaining that. Um, but I loved it. I loved writing on the blog. I loved finding other people who were writing their blog, sharing their stories. And as much as I like the fast pace of social media now, I really do like feel rooted in that long form narrative where people would write 800 to 1000 word blog posts about their feelings about diabetes or their experiences with diabetes. And you could really deep dive into that and get to know that writer in a way I, I feel is sometimes lost a little bit in the, in the quick shuffle of, um, Instagram stories, et cetera. Now so right. there's a little bit lost in that. And I like when people bridge the gap and put really long captions. in, so I know what's the story behind that, that image that could look fleeting otherwise. Uh, but there are a lot of people that were blogging that are no longer blogging, but who I still keep in touch with because that was the community that I, as a person with diabetes grew up with. And, uh, I like seeing that they're still kicking around and sharing their stories and thriving. I, th- I think it's important. That's what people are really looking for. I mean, again, it's like that personal narrative. You can go on Google all day and yeah, find the the search terms of like, okay, how to live with type one diabetes. Well, lower your carbon take, take your insulin, live by a routine, all the like, but nobody- I love that you roll your eyes when you say that. <laughs> I'm like, being a 19 year old in, in college, mm-hmm. I was like, 
you know, it it just didn't feel feasible for me. I'm like, okay, I have to wake up at the same time, eat the same things every day, work out the same way. I'm like, this just doesn't feel good for me. And like, boring. Right. I'm like, I'm a human being with like preferences and a social Mm -hmm. life and relationships and diabetes doesn't feel like it's fitting into that. And everything that I'm reading is telling me to fit into this mold. And it it just Mm -hmm. didn't, it didn't feel good. So that's where I do think that like the personal journeys, at least for me, finding the online community, I didn't really start going online like on Instagram until um, I think it was like, as soon as I graduated college. So like 2018, um, 2017, I started an account. I had my personal account, but I was like, I'm not mm-hmm. going to follow diabetics on there. Like that's my, <laughs> that's my personal life. So I made like an account like T1D Lissy, and that was my diabetes account that I got to actually. But that's where I started really learning like, okay, there's more to this than my doctors are telling me mm-hmm. like it's not just count your carbs taking your insulin i'm allowed to feel defeated by the number even though my a1c is like they always congratulate you for the low a1c's mm-hmm. but they're not you know yeah they're not living the experience of the highs and lows so it's easy to kind of get caught up in that of like am i allowed to feel this way and i think the online space and people sharing really validates that for sure and then it's that that you just mentioned you know the feelings around certain numbers we're told to view these data as data and not to assign emotion. Well, good friggin' luck if you're living with diabetes because it's so hard to not look at these numbers and feel like they are sometimes a report card. Mm-hmm. Um, self-worth, uh, emotions like good and bad get attached to them. Even when you are trying so hard not to do that, it just happens. And so by communicating with other people who know what that's like to think through that process, it can humanize the whole experience and actually takes a lot of the emotional pressure, I think, off of those data because you feel like you can process it fully. Right. Right. You're not just like associating your self-worth almost with this mm-hmm. number. Actually, that's a, like this is totally off script. I didn't send you this question. But now that we're talking <laughs> about it, like just growing up with diabetes and having like your parents kind of take on that role. Can you speak to a little on like, what narrative did they give you around the numbers? I'm just kind of curious. I don't I can't remember my parents giving me a narrative around it. But I remember my mother distinctly saying because we went to the Jocelyn appointments together. She was kind of my partner in crime in that. And she used to view my A1C as her report card, which I thought was so crappy of her to have to feel that way. Not that she felt that way, but but that the position she was put in to feel that way, because it was like if my number came back in range, uh, actually, that part shouldn't be in quotes. Good should have been in quotes. In range is very valid to say. But if it came back um, in a way that she didn't feel good about, she felt like that made her a crummy parent. And I thought that was so crappy. (laughs) So I know that she took a lot of she took a lot of emotional hits um, from those data points because. She was told to at the time. And I'm mm-hmm. hoping that as families are diagnosed now, that they are starting by not assigning so much emotion to that data because we're going to put it there anyway. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're at least leading with it's a good, an in-range A1C does not make you a good or bad person. Numbers mm-hmm. do not make you a good or bad person. Diabetes is its own freestanding, free-form math equation. It doesn't make you good or bad as a person. I feel like that's starting to get out there more so than what's what's your fasting blood sugar? What's your A1C? Data, 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 labric, labric. Like that's not who we are as people. Right. I actually like I've started doing this thing with my clients. We have inside our program, we have data reflection calls. And I I made sure to like this is not your report card. This is. Mm -hmm. But one thing I like to challenge them to do sometimes is before you even look at the numbers, I want you to think of like three things that you like about yourself or something like three good things that happened this week outside of diabetes, regardless of the numbers. What are things that are good? Right. Yeah. (laughs) It gets hard to kind of think in that space without with diabetes detached. Mm hmm. Yep. It's well, it's because, it, and I've said this a couple of times in different spaces, but a lot of times this prepositional phrase is just slammed onto our entire existence. Like you are 
hosting a podcast with diabetes. When I was pregnant, it's like, you have a pregnancy with diabetes. Like the with diabetes thing seems to be this thing that just dangles off of everything. And that can become empowering on the days where you feel like you're in control of things. And it can be really diminishing and, and distressing on the days where you're like, this feels like an albatross I'm dragging around with me. Mm-hmm. The with diabetes preposition, I feel like is something that we are all kind of grappling with as a group. And again, going back to the community side of things, I like to see how people are processing that on a day to day, on a situation by situation, because again, it humanizes this whole thing. Right. So how do you find that healthy balance of like, this is a part of me, but it's not all of me. And I feel like we all kind of go along that spectrum of like, sometimes it feels like it's everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And sometimes I don't even want to think about it. It's, it's over there. I'm not, I'm not looking at it. So it doesn't stay over there, like crawl back over there. (laughs) You have to deal with that thing too. Yep. It's, it's a trip. (laughs) <laughs> yep. Yep. No. Um. But so along with sharing so much of your journey in the online space or blogging, what are the experiences that came with that? Obviously, it's a big part of your journey now, even still. So yeah, I'd just like to kind of speak a little bit more on that. Um. I think, so you did send that question over. And I really thought about this one because I feel like now that I'm not writing as much online, I might sound a little curmudgeon about what I decided to share at the time. But I think there's a perspective that comes from looking at it in the rear view versus being in the middle of doing it now. And so when I was writing uh, early in my blog, I would share things like my A1C, um, the goals that I had that were data-driven, and a lot of the uh, food issues that I was uh, kind of grew up with. I didn't have uh, eating disorders per se, but disordered eating and thoughts about food were very mashed up and got very strange because of the emotional assignment that we as people with diabetes have to put on this stuff. Um, and I wrote about a lot of that. And in looking back, I wish that I'd shared a little bit less because it does open you up to a lot of judgment. Uh, someone said to me way early on that once it's published, it's forever public. And I wish I'd taken that very seriously in terms of all the different data points that I decided to share. Because while I kept my kids' names offline and didn't share my A1Cs, you know, generally speaking, after um, one of my pregnancies, I didn't like that I shared it during it because it mm-hmm. did open up experiences that I was proud of or numbers that I was proud of to ha- run through the critique mill. And that can right. be really gross when you are proud of a number to have somebody go back and say, oh, it's still not good enough. When you're like, oh no, I worked like really hard to get it to this point, And you're still telling me it's not good enough. Again, that emotional squish starts to happen. Um, I, I like the stories that were shared. I like the realness of the stories that were shared um, back then. I like that people weren't afraid to be very vulnerable. I see a lot of that now, people not afraid to say that they're dealing with certain uh, stigma or or fears. I, I like that now that there's a lot of discussions about complications because mm-hmm. that for a long time was something that we as people with diabetes and also I think to a certain point, we as advocates were sometimes said not to say that part out loud because it could scare people that could be looking up to you or insert right. different scenario here. Um, I'm glad people are sharing that stuff now because I feel like a real advocate is living a real life with diabetes and that includes ups and downs blood sugar wise, ups and downs emotionally. That That includes complications that are diabetes related complications that have nothing to do with diabetes life crap that happens like to say that stuff out loud again this is becoming thematic it's very humanizing it's mm-hmm. good to know that you're surrounded by fellow humans uh, but i liked i liked the oversharing a little too much i think and that's part of what made me want to pull it back because as my kids started to age and i started to age i realized that some of the things that i wanted to share needed to be discussed at home first or needed to be processed at home first and not everything needs to be said out loud. Yeah. People don't need to know your A1C. People don't right. need to know your weight. People don't need to know where you live for crying out loud, that that should never be posted online. But stuff like that, I feel like as um, the internet has grown up and the diabetes community has grown up on the internet to a certain extent, we're learning from one another in that way and hopefully trying to keep each other safe and protected too. 
Yeah. That is a real roundabout. Did I actually answer the question? Yeah, I think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you have a you have a solid point and I think that the the lines, I mean in any in any like niche on the online community, there's always like those lines that are blurred, but at the end of the day it is kind of always that double-edged sword too of like mm-hmm. oh you like you share okay so for so for example if i'm sharing a blood sugar that's 300 um mm-hmm. i might get a handful of people that are like thank you like thank you for sharing mm-hmm. that you're a, a person and you have a blood sugar of 300 today and then you get the other side of the community that's like how dare you normalize that number that in, that's in itself is dangerous and it's like mm-hmm. okay you can understand both sides but at the end of the day to your point it's being a human and deciding i think that's the, the empowering part of like getting to decide what you share and put out there and like of course we have to you know be wary of as consumers too of what we are consuming because i think that can be kind of that, that can be kind of dangerous as well of of always consuming other people's life with diabetes and then having that compare comparison i comparing comparison <laughs> That, that, and hell yes, <laughs> absolutely. You have to, um, if you're scrolling through everybody's either perfectly curated feeds and then looking through your own photos on your phone going, oh my God, it doesn't look so nice and so pretty. You have to realize that nothing is that nice and that pretty. Mm-hmm. And the diabetes roosts where it wants to roost and says what it wants to say. You can control it to a certain extent, but there's some stuff that's out of our control. And we have to be graceful with ourselves for that that part too, even if it's the stuff that some people might not want to hear. Right, yeah. right. Do you think like, so right now, I mean, it's, uh, to my knowledge, like you do a lot of speaking, the public speaking. Um, I heard you speak at camp. I know you've been to like the JDRF events and everything. Do those experiences come from your roots of blogging and speaking about diabetes so publicly? They, they do. And man, I, I miss that stuff. So like COVID took such a big bite out of that in-person sort of thing because speaking engagements were far less readily available. People were less inclined mm-hmm. to get together a group of people who could be viewed as vulnerable to a pandemic. They were like, well, let's not lump them together in a room. So it, we kind of got sealed shut from that one for a bit. But I, I enjoyed that so much. And I think that what uh, I'd like to think that what made me effective as a speaker is that I was not pontificating from the pulpit about perfect blood sugars and how to be a perfect person with diabetes. It was like, here is a slide deck about places where I've had a good go and places where I've royally screwed up. Would you like to hear those stories? Fantastic. Like that, again, the humanizing thing. People... I think in general are are inspired by clinicians and are inspired by people doing fantastic things. But I think they're also inspired by people doing the regular crap that they are also aspiring to do, mm-hmm. like getting up in the morning and going for a run, uh, making a breakfast that tasted like something and didn't suck, um, having a baby, having a relationship, uh, go traveling, like all real life stuff that we all are interested in. I think the small vignettes about those regular everyman sorts of things are even more powerful to a certain extent because that's accessible and um, fun to share with people, the small triumphs, the little successes. I think those go a long way, especially on the days when diabetes might feel, as you had mentioned earlier, the days where it feels a little daunting. Yeah, It's nice to know, well, that person made coffee without spilling it on themselves and without having a post-coffee spike. Good on you. Like that's, that's kind of cool. <laughs> like that's so the it win. It seems small and trite, but it's really powerful. Yeah. And I like that too, because you're not like in my, in my experience, at least when you go and bring those conversations to your endocrinologist, like, yes, there's a time and place, you know, medication and dosing, all those things. But at the same time, like sometimes I want conversations without getting that checklist or that like, okay, do this, do X, Y, and Z, write down your numbers after, come back and let's revisit in three months. It's like, no, sometimes I just want to have a conversation about it and like right. acknowledge that it's hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and then like the real life application of stuff. So I don't know if you are or not on an insulin pump, mm-hmm. or, but but for devices and things like that, prescribers are fantastic yeah. about saying that these are our options and insurance companies will fight us on what they'll cover or whatever. But once it comes to practical application of that thing, that awesome thing, 
into our lives, that's where the community comes together and says, here's how you wear a dress with an insulin pump. Here's how you have sex with an insulin pump. Mm -hmm. Here's how you manage going through airport security with a CGM. Like that's the stuff that a lot of people in the community actually want to hear because we don't get that real life experience from clinicians. We get that from each other. Yeah. And that's why the stories that we continue to share are so important because we're all still learning on this road together, you know? Yeah. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but you coined the term rage bolus. That's that's yours, yeah. right? And I love that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Because it's so real. Yes, it's so and, real. Okay. Well, first of all, like, how did you how did you come up with that? Like, when did I don't that? No, it was. I think it was. I think it was in 2005, and it was after. It was in a blog post about writing, uh, riding out a really nasty high. And I mean, I am not endorsing taking too much insulin for anything. So insert caveat thingy disclaimer. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know who sponsors who, but um. Sometimes you get so mad that you you override the correction dose. Mm-hmm. And I always picture banging on the buttons of the pump just as rage bolus because you're angry and you're tired of being high and it doesn't feel good. So you just take a bolus and that that feels good. And it feels like that, that phrasing really resonated for people because I clearly was not the only one who was smashing the buttons on a respective device just to get something to happen. Like that was crazy making. So... Yeah, yeah. Th- that was one of the things that when I first got onto the online community, I'm like, okay, there, I learned two things. First, I learned about pre-bolusing, but then I learned about rage bolusing, and like, <laughs> they are I'm, not the same, <laughs> not the same. But I feel like that's one of those things where like you just read the term, and if you're living with type one diabetes, you know, like you resonate with that. You're like, they just put a, yeah. a term to something that I've experienced so many times before that my endocrinologist obviously doesn't want me to talk about. <laughs> Right. Well, actually, the weird thing. So I just started with a new endocrinologist and he was born around the time that I was diagnosed. So we have a little bit of an age disparity. Um, and he was looking at my numbers and doing what endos do. You know, why were you high two Thursdays ago? And I'm like, I don't know. And so he happened to look and he's like, Oh, it looks like, looks like on occasion here, you're doing some rage bolusing. And I was like, Oh, he knows, he knows my magic word. Like, <laughs> that's a really weird moment. He's like, Do you know what that is? I was like, I 100% know what that is. And you're totally right. That's what I'm doing. And I thought that was so cool that he, used a term that our community uses that means he understands something even though he doesn't have diabetes about how our brains and our fingers work in conjunction sometimes yep and i respected him even more for for knowing that yeah he didn't need to know that it was my term he just knew it was a term that existed i was like all the other ones that we've made up as a group right i would just play around with him be like yeah can you like cute google that real quick and let me know the origin (laughs) no but (laughs) yeah I think it comes down to like speaking the same language at the end of the day. Like I think there's so like all these different spaces, like you have your endocrinologist office, you have like Facebook groups that are telling you to do X, Y, Z, you have the social media, like you have so many different spaces and like there's kind of that um, like la- language gap or that language barrier in different places for lack, gap, yeah. For, yeah, <laughs> for lack of better words. And when people start connecting the dots in that way, it kind of feels really good to be like, okay, I feel heard, I feel seen mm-hmm. in, in the experience that I'm living. Absolutely. And it also, I think, illustrates a willingness to work together towards a common goal. Mm -hmm. So my clinician doesn't have to live with diabetes in order to be an expert in it. And I don't have to be an expert in it and be perfectly controlled in order for he and I both to be working together to get me in range as as much as possible and accomplishing the life goals that I am setting for myself. Mm -hmm. I like knowing that he is on the team in that way. Yep. So that common language helps us talk about it in realistic terms. Yeah, I love that. So real quick, as again, you've seen the the diabetes community evolve. Like you've seen a lot of it. You've seen the not technology evolve. You've seen the in person events. All the all the things. What are the the best things about sharing online and the worst things? And I know we kind of covered some of them, but yeah, just curious um, from your perspective. I would I I'll start with the worst, right, and then we'll go kind of to the best because it sucks to end on a on a gross note. 
But I would think that some of the worst things are having to brace yourself for critique from people that don't know you or um, to get the stigmatized comments from people who don't know us as a community at all. And then the just I, I kind of balk a little bit at um, when the community is always trying to uh, if the community is trying to sell you something versus hear you. That really irritates me. And so I feel like the community, the diabetes community started well before I started blogging. Like I just happened to get in on the blogging time, but it existed in like 1979 or something. They were talking on Usenet boards about random things, listservs, stuff that I don't know anything about, but I know it existed well before us. And so I feel like blogs like mine, podcasts like yours, Instagram, whatever, it stands on the shoulders of these iterations before it. And I think that the more that we uh, share with one another, the more that we sometimes can be critiquey and picky with one another. And so I like when the community is being supportive without throwing a lot of judgment grossness. And I like when the community is listening instead of saying, buy my book. And I realize that I've written a book and I've written books and I've said, hey, you can buy my book. But I always want it to be like, because I'm listening to you, like we want to mm -hmm. listen to one another. That's the part that matters the most. So that leads into what's the best about the community. And that is definitively that these people get it. Even if they don't get exactly what you're going through and they don't exactly live the day that you've just gone through, they get their own version of it. And then there's such power to that common thread of experience. Um, I think it even benefits us to a certain extent when we are interacting with people in the community who don't think like we do and don't do what we do uh, specifically, that we have a chance to bridge those gaps together. And then even in, in a more important sense, when we see people that don't have access to what we have access to or the privilege that we have access to and that we can help hopefully rise the tide so that everybody has access to what they need to survive and live well. Uh, I like when the community does that, when the community comes together as a community and takes care of one another. And I see yeah. that in every single social media platform and every iteration of the diabetes community. There's always been people who have the backs of the other people. And I mean, that's, I can't find words for that. I'm a writer, a speaker. I can't find words for that because it's so profoundly awesome. That's yeah. the best I can do. I think yeah. it's so great to see people coming together to make sure that we are all living well. That's yeah. amazing. I think that it's such a bond. And I remember actually on the way back from the slipstream in Maine, I was carpooling with three other girls and then we ran into you at the gas station too. And like all of a sudden, <laughs> I, I don't remember how it happened, but we all had like our, our pumps or our death comms out. And like, it was just this, and like, you know, of course we just came from a weekend where there was like a hundred other people wearing CGMs and pumps and beeping and everything, but still there's yeah. just that camaraderie, camaraderie I can speak today that would be amazing You're um, <laughs> that that team effort and that bond of saying like yeah. like you have diabetes I have diabetes you can have a conversation with somebody for an hour like you and I've had very limited conversations in general like we've met each other a few times but now we can talk to each other for an hour on a podcast because that it's just that connection that anybody can talk about and you get to create that safe space for one another and I just love that so much yeah and I bet I love that too about um wearing people wearing devices now that you can spot a kindred spirit or kindred pancreas like across the crowded gas station because you see their tubing or you see the cgm bulge or whatever and you're like i know you i don't know you but like i know you in a way that other people don't and yeah. that's that is really really unifying and i think sometimes as a group we forget that a little bit how much yeah. we have truly in common yeah yeah um for the last question i'm going to actually i'm mad at myself because i didn't put it on my notes in front of me but i have it in my notes on my phone and i'm gonna put you on the spotlight a little bit with one of your blog posts here we go so i was reading your initial blog the the sits until me and i really liked that last piece that you wrote and i'm gonna kind of read it out loud and then follow up with my last question so you'd written she had six years until me people thought i would change her life make her sad make her sick make her angry but instead, I've made her strong. I've made her fearless, and I've made her appreciate everything that she has, everything she fights for. She hasn't let me make her choices. She refuses to let me own her. She controls me. 
when she has it in her last moments, whether 60 years from now or today, she will know with certainty that she has lived. And I just think that's such an empowering statement coming from everything that you you wrote and the experience that you were sharing. And so to follow up with my last question, the title of this podcast is Keep You 100 Radio Uncensored Diabetes Conversations. And I would love for you to share your best piece of uncensored advice for anybody listening that wants to feel like that. To, they want to feel empowered by diabetes. They want to feel like they they control it and they've they've lived. My mom said that to me. That was, I wish that I could take credit for making that up in the capital L and the word lived. But I remember her saying that in like a fit of my diabetes rage when I was younger and so frustrated by having this disease and feeling so like I didn't know what to do with myself. And she was like, you have to feel like your life matters and not to other people, but to you. You have to feel like by the end of this, whether it's today or 60 years from now, that you really lived and that you did what you wanted. And that stuck with me in such a way that I feel like that would be the best <laughs> bit of unsolicited, uncensored um, advice for people who are living with diabetes, because that's that's the part that sometimes we lose a grip on, that we are living with it, right? And so it's not a matter of how can we control it, or how can we best it, or how can we get the most out of life um, with it? It's just how do we live with it? How do we get the goals that we want and live with it? Not feel like we are shaping our lives to fit its needs, but that we are bending it to meet ours. So that that might be it. I like that a lot. Yeah. No problem. Oh, love it. Um, and as, the, as the sun is disappearing and it is pouring rain outside, I'm so sorry. It's like so dark in here. Oh, no, it's fine. It's, yeah, it's pouring here too. It's one of those like gloomy days. Mm-hmm. Um, so where can everybody find your your books that you've written? I know you just put out your your stories, Sits Until Me. Um, I bought it on my Kindle last night. But yeah, wherever can everyone find you and your stories? Um, I have a website. It's kerrysparling.com. It's pretty much the good home base for anybody looking for anything I've written. I also wrote a super goofy book with my daughter that she decided to illustrate that has zero to do with diabetes. And it's all about the cat making a sweater out of its own fur. But I feel like I have to um, promote that just a little bit because I'm really proud of her illustration. So I'm throwing that out there. But all of my books and hopefully the future speaking engagements that are now starting to come back into play uh, will be listed there. But I have to thank you for for having me. I've, it's been a real honor. And I appreciate your questions and um, kind of stumbling through this whole diabetes life with me, not your podcast, you are stumbling through that, but just this whole thing that we are trying to do every day. Appreciate you being on the walk too. So thanks for doing that. No, and I appreciate you coming on. And again, like, as I mentioned, somebody who's diagnosed when they're 19, it's really hard to find those people to really connect with. And you've definitely been one of those people. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing and just being part of all of our journeys. Thank you. And also, just as a quick plug, I've seen you speak before, too, and you were very good. So you haven't oh. mentioned that you were also speaking at these events, and you were very good. So I'm make sure that I say that as well. Oh. Keep that part in. <laughs> Thank you. I don't usually mention that. Thank you. 